0: Well, go ahead and take your Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Jude, book of Jude. And if you are with us this morning and you, you don't happen to have a copy of the scriptures, a Bible with you um, on your phone or paper copy, slip up your hands. We've got some guys in the back that will hand it out so that you can have a copy of the Bible and follow along as we work through the text this morning. Everybody's good. All right. I'd say Jude chapter one, but guess what? There's only one chapter in Jude. Uh, But this this short little letter, this one-chapter letter, Jude, it begins with Jude writing this greeting to his readers. Look at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, which would also mean that he's the half-brother of who? Jesus. That's the James that's being talked about here. But Jude identifies himself as a servant of Christ, Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called... Beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That's his greeting. And then Jude explains his purpose in writing this short letter to his readers. Verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it... What word does he use here? Necessary to write appealing to you to contend. And some translations say contend Earnestly, this is a a strong verb that speaks of effort being exerted. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then Jude gives this warning. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now skip down to verse 17. Look at Jude's admonition, his call to action here. But you must remember, beloved, you must remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. with this great doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. With great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion and authority. Before all time and now and forever. Amen. What a great doxology isn't it? But here this the short letter, little letter uh, is a is a calling, a challenge, in light of false teaching that has crept into the church, a challenge to contend earnestly for the faith. It is is a call uh, to contend for the faith while while trusting that God will be the one that ultimately keeps us in the faith. And Jude's call here to contend is going to help set our course for our time together this morning. We're going to take Jude's call and let it, it anchor our thinking this morning as we talk about some very important truths for our lives and for our church. However, before we go any further, let's look to our God and ask him who keeps us to bless our time together in his word. Would you pray with me? Holy and gracious God, we, we thank you. Thank you for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Thank you for the precious truth of your word given to us, your people. Help us to be faithful to it and to contend earnestly for it. And this morning we thank you for those who have gone before us, who have fought faithfully for the truths of your word. Some who fought even to the point of giving up their very lives instead of denying the truth of your word. Thank you for their very real and very powerful testimony to us. May we honor what you did in them and through them by, by remembering them this morning and seeing the tremendous value of the biblical doctrines that they fought to uphold. Lord, I pray that you would rescue us from the, the ignorance and the generational blinders that so often plague us uh, in the modern church. Help us to be humble enough to to learn from the lessons of others, to learn from the past, and wise enough to apply those lessons to the situations, to the battles that lay before us. Be with your people this morning through the teaching of your word, the teaching of your truth. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you ever heard the quote, those who cannot remember the past are... Condemned to repeat it. Maybe you've ever heard those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. I was looking up that quote, and some attribute that quote to the 19th century philosopher George Santayana. Others say it predated him. It was from um, an 18th century British statesman, Edmund Burke. Couldn't try quite track out who it was, too. But no matter who said it first, it's a good point, isn't it? It's a good point. History is a valuable, a valuable. Teacher. Wisdom is often found as, as we look to the past and we learn from it. And let's be honest, that's so much better, so much better of an approach to learn from the experience of others instead of having to try to figure out everything on our own. You know, what do they call that learning the hard way? Uh, it's better to look back and learn from the experience of others. Again, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Now, that quote has often been used in, in political circles or in talking about battle strategy, But I think especially in light of what we're going to talk about this morning, it's very applicable to us in the church of Jesus Christ. You see, the church throughout her history has fought battles and learned some really important lessons. And and by fighting battles, I, I don't mean out on a literal battlefield. I'm not talking about things like the Crusades. Instead, I'm talking about the times and the seasons in the life of the church where people have had to rise up and, as Jude puts it, contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And there have actually been... Numerous times, numerous seasons when faithful believers have had to rise up and battle for the truth of the Christian faith. Uh, battle for the faith received that we received from Jesus and his apostles, uh, the doctrines given to us by the word of God. But here's the thing. Sadly, in the modern church, we, we become ignorant of many of those battles, many of those times and seasons. Often, uh, we, in the modern Western church, we're too ignorant of our history. We're ignorant of our history. And, and because of our ignorance, uh, we lose the wisdom of the lessons that were learned in and through those battles of the past. We lose our handle on the past. And so this saying, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. We see that often, often tragically being lived out in the modern church. The modern church too often falls for novel ideas, not realizing that they're simply old heresies dressed up in 21st century garb. Sometimes those in the modern church will, will set aside core doctrines of the faith, calling them impractical or confusing, or they're just they're just not really connecting with people. Forgetting that those who came before suffered and died for those doctrines because they're important. They're important. More too often in the modern church we will We'll treat the thinkers of the past as though they are inferior. They're steps backwards in our religious evolution. They're not relevant enough. Instead of seeing those thinkers of the past as what they are, they're precious brothers and sisters in our faith who often thought deeper and better about the truths of God than we do. You see, when we lose our handle on the past, we open ourselves up for all kinds of struggles. And when we act like we don't need our history, like we don't need to, to learn wisdom from the past, we are, we are foolishly condemning ourselves to learn the hard way. Learn the hard way. We lose sight of the wisdom gained in the battles fought before us, and we decrease our ability to contend earnestly for the faith. And so that's why when we first planted redemption over six years ago now, uh, one of our commitments here has been to connect Contemporary Christians with our history as Christians connect us with what has come before us. So, we, we read books by old dead guys. Uh, <laughs> we talk about and we quote historic Christian confessions. Each summer, our, our men's group and our women's group, they read through Christian biographies together. And it's all aimed at learning from our history. It's all aimed at remembering that we're not simply part of a local church. We're not simply part of the universal global church. We are also part of the universal historical church. We have 2,000 plus years of brothers and sisters following Jesus, ministering in the power of the Spirit, learning to live out the Word of God. We have 2,000 years of our fellow believers heeding Jude's call to contend earnestly for the faith. So here's an obvious question. Why in the world would we ignore that? Why would we ignore them? So much we can learn, brothers and sisters. So much we can learn from them. And one of the ways that we've tried to keep that focus here at Redemption on learning from the past is by celebrating each year, what Dave mentioned earlier, what's called Reformation Sunday. Every year, the last Sunday in October is marked out, actually by Christians all around the globe, as Reformation Sunday. And it's marked out as Reformation Sunday because it's the Sunday right before what's called Reformation Day. You see, actually, as Dave mentioned, 500 years ago this week, on October 31st, 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther nailed a document called the 95 Theses to the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. And, and as Dave mentioned, he nailed that document there as a public declaration, a call for debate over matters of faith and the gospel. Luther was starting to contend earnestly. But with that act, Luther, not I don't think fully realizing yet what he was doing, um, but he provided a spark that ignited what is now known as the Protestant Reformation. And many historians see that date, October 31st, 1517, as the beginning of the birth of the Protestant Reformation. So each year, October 31st is not just Halloween. It's also when Christians around the globe look back and remember the Reformation that came to the church in the 16th century. And as I said, Uh, Many of us set aside the Sunday prior to October 31st as Reformation Sunday. An opportunity for us to pause and look back at this powerful moment in our history. So I want to talk for a moment about the Protestant Reformation. I want to make sure that you're clear on what it was. Um, Historians call it the Protestant Reformation because, one, it was a call to reform the church. It was a call for reformation. And two, it was a call to reform the church by protesting. That's where the term Protestant comes from. It was a call to reform by protesting the abusive practices and the dangerous theology which had overtaken the medieval church. Now here's the thing. When I say protesting I want you to make sure that you understand what I'm talking about. They weren't protesting by walking around with picket signs or hanging up traffic at the airport or kneeling on a football field. That's not the kind of protesting we're talking about. Instead what what Luther and his fellow reformers sought to do was call out the issues that they saw in the church. It's issues of faith and practice, and seek to correct those issues with the clear teachings of the Scripture. They're attempting to reform the church by making the issues clear and then addressing them with Scripture. Novel idea, isn't it? Something we still need to be doing today, amen? Making the issues clear and then addressing them with the teaching of the Scripture. Now, here's an important point about the Protestant Reformation. The Reformers were not not trying to start a new church. They also weren't trying to cause a schism in the church. They loved the church. They were churchmen. But what they were, they were doing, they were simply attempting to be faithful to the teaching of Scripture. They were simply attempting to, to reform the church of their day. They were simply attempting to heed Jude's call to contend earnestly for the faith. And those men and women, like Martin Luther and his wife Catherine von Bora, along with others like John Calvin and Erlwyck Zwingli and John Knox and several others, they did contend earnestly. They fought valiantly. They sacrificed uh, tremendously. They, they labored through, through intense, important theological battles, and some of them literally died for it. It wasn't just like an argument we get in on Facebook. They literally died for it. So, brothers and sisters, we need to remember their sacrifice. We should should praise God for their sacrifice. They they were heroes. Not not perfect people, don't misunderstand me. But they were heroes, contending heroes in our faith. However, saying all that, um, Reformation Day isn't simply about remembering those contending heroes, or at least it shouldn't be. Uh, I I read a Reformation scholar this week tweet out that Luther would hate for us to make the Reformation all about Luther and he would call us to repent for it. And I think all the Reformers would. They would all instead want us to make it about remembering and focusing on the biblical truths that they fought for and sacrificed to reclaim. And so this Reformation Sunday, that's what I want to do. I want to give you an overview of the key truths for which the Reformers Fought. I want to make sure that here as we are, in a sense, celebrating five, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, that, that we're clear on, on specifically what Luther and his contemporaries were contending for. This morning, I'm going to mark out for you what, what I'll call the battle lines of the Reformation. I want you to see and understand the hills that they were willing to die on. Um, but as we do this, I, I want to make sure not, this is not simply an academic history lesson this morning. But I hope it comes across as a challenge for all of us to see what's important. See what's important. What was at stake then, and what is still at stake today. I want us to pursue this understanding of history this morning because, again, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And brothers and sisters, I don't want to sound alarmist, but we are repeating it. We're repeating it. Reformation is still needed the Church of Jesus Christ, especially along the battle lines that we're going to talk about this morning. So, what were their battle lines? What, what truths were these reformers willing to die for? Well, as scholars of church history look back on the Reformation, there are, there are five essential components, five key truths over which the battle was fought, and these five truths are often called the five solas, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and soli Deo Gloria. And those five solas are Latin phrases, Latin being the academic language of the Reformation, that that period in time. And each of those phrases is built around the Latin word sola. And that's a word that simply means alone. So these five Latin phrases translated into English are Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. And those five were the battle lines of the Reformation. Those were the areas that the Reformers sought to reclaim in the life and thinking and practice of the church. And here's the thing. I want to make sure we're clear on this. This was not trivial stuff to them. This wasn't about academic arguments or ivory tower theology. All of the Reformers suffered for these things. And again, several of them died. ...for these five truths. But why? Why? Well, as I'll show you this morning... ...these five truths address three key areas... ...in the life of the church. Three crucial areas. The five solas address the issues of... ...one, our authority... two, our salvation... ...and three, our center. Our center. And when you get those things wrong... When you get the wrong authority, when you're confused on how a person is saved, and when you have the wrong center, guess what, brothers and sisters? The church is in a bad spot when you get those three wrong. In the era of the Reformation, that pre-Reformation church, they were in a bad spot. They were in a bad spot. And the further we in the modern church drift from a right understanding of these three areas, authority, salvation, and center, we too are finding ourselves in a similar bad spot. You see, these are battles, we're still battle lines along which we're still fighting. Or at least, we should be. We should be. And we dare not give up the fight because each area is so very important. So let's first talk about the reformers and the battle over authority. authority. And here what we're dealing with is the first sola. Sola scriptura. Scripture alone. And this is often called the formal principle Of the Reformation, it was foundational for the Reformation. Who or what is the authority for the church? Who or what is the authority for the believer? And in the pre-Reformation church, the answer to that question was the magisterium. Magisterium, no. What's that? What is the magisterium? Well, that was the leadership over the church, the Catholic Church, made up of the Pope, his Council of Bishops. And those men had ultimate authority. That had ultimate authority. They were over everything. Even over the word of God. You see, the leadership of the church in that era taught that the task of interpreting the word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to them, solely to the magisterium of the church. So whatever they said, however they interpreted, and sometimes twisted, and sometimes spun the scripture, well, that was the interpretation that held ultimate authority. And what happened is that as the sole interpreters of the scripture, the magisterium ended up standing as the authority even over the Bible itself. Even over the Bible itself. They were not captive to the word, and said they made the word captive to them. And guess what, brothers and sisters? That's a big problem. It's a big problem when we head there. You see, when men, when the church tries to stand as authority, over the Word of God, well, that's a little like the, the tail trying to wag the dog. Or as Riley was telling me today, it's like crackers on cheese. It's upside down, it's backwards. See, the Bible is to stand as the authority over us, right? Amen? It's the Bible. It has the final say. That's the final say over the people of God, including those in leadership over the people of God. Amen? It's the word of God that's there to keep leaders in check. It's the word of God that is to direct the decisions of those in leadership. And it's the word of God that ultimately has authority over those in leadership. And the reason for that, as the reformers argued, is that in the word of God, we find the very voice of God. We find the very voice of God. You see, the reformers argued that the scripture is the verbum Dei, the very word, the authoritative voice of God himself. John Calvin explained it this way. He said that the scripture is as authoritative as if God himself had been given utterance, given voice. In other words, the scriptures hold the same authority as as would God himself. If he were to step down from heaven and speak to you directly. They want me to think about that. Is that often the way we respond to this book? As though God himself himself were to step down from heaven and speak to us directly. Very authoritative voice of God. Scripture is the verbum day, the word of God. And, and this idea that Scripture is the very word of God. Here's the thing: it didn't originate with Calvin, it didn't originate with the reformers. They simply were communicating what they were finding in the Scripture. This is Scripture's testimony of itself. Think about what the Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy. You know this. 2 Timothy 3:16. All Scripture is, and there's a a Greek term that's used there, theopenoustos, it's it's breathed out by God. It's the very Word of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And Paul says, so it is profitable. Profitable for teaching, profitable for reproof, profitable for correction, and profitable for training in righteousness. Scripture is God's very Word to us. It teaches us. It reproves us corrects us, and it trains us. God is telling us through his word, here's what's right. Here's where we aren't right. Here's how we can get right. And here's how we live right. The scripture is God himself telling us about faith and practice. So it holds ultimate authority. Ultimate authority. And the apostle Peter teaches us this same truth about the nature of this book. He writes this, this is 2 Peter 1, 21. Listen to this. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke. What, what is this about? Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's why Peter tells his readers in that text, right before he says that, he tells his readers that the word is a lamp shining in a dark place and they do well to pay attention to it. And guess what? That was true of the pre-Reformation church and it's true of our day as well. The word of God is a lamp shining in a dark place and brothers and sisters, we do well to pay attention to it. We do well to pay attention to it. Now this idea that the scripture is the, the Verbum Dei, the Word of God. That's a doctrine that the early church held to. Uh, the first Christians spoke that way. This was part of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Let me just give you one example of this. You don't have to turn there. But over in the book of Acts chapter 4, Luke records for us a prayer meeting. <clears throat> it was a prayer meeting in the early church. And he records some of the words that they prayed. And he says, Acts chapter 4, that their prayer started this way. Listen, this is Acts Chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and, listen to this, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, You, Sovereign Lord, who made everything, and you said by the Holy Spirit. And then they go on to quote Psalm 2. And they quote Psalm 2, applying it authoritatively to their situation. You see, The early church saw Psalm 2 as the very word of God. It's God speaking to us. His authoritative voice. And that's what directed them. It held authority over them as the people of God. And the reformers, as they were discovering this and they're teaching this, they argued guess what? It's always been this way. It's always been this way. I mean, you go all the way back to the beginning, back to the garden. The opening chapter of Genesis, God speaks and things come into being. Second chapter, God speaks again and he sets limits, right? He sets limit. He gives the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, his word, his command. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. He gives his word, his command. And that was to be authority over them. Think about this. The man and the woman, <laughs> were, were they tainted by sin at that point? No. Innocent. And here's the man, he's he's the steward over all of creation. And yet, even in that condition, they are still under the authority of the word of God. That was to be their authority. And then when they violate the word of God, God holds them accountable to what? To the word. To the word. Genesis 3.17, God says to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, And have eaten of the tree which I commanded you. And here comes the word. I commanded you, Adam, you shall not eat. That was my voice to you, but you didn't listen to that. You listened to another voice. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat, curses the ground because of you. In other words, Adam, you let something else trump my voice. You let something else stand as authority over you instead of my word. And that principle, that God's word holds the authority over God's people, that's something we continue to see, not not just there in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, but all the way through the Bible. All the way through the Bible. Think about it. What's going on there at Mount Sinai? We see there at Mount Sinai, there Moses and the people are gathered together at the mountain, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and there's smoke. But it wasn't just about a religious experience, was it? It wasn't just about a confirmation of leadership, was it? What were they given there at Sinai? What are they given? Yeah, they're given the word. They are given by God his word. They receive the commandments. And those commandments were to do what? Were these suggestions? Here's some options, guys. No, it was to stand as authority over them. And think about this. Here's Moses, their leader, and Aaron the priest, but even those two men, what must they do? They must submit to the authority of the word. God's word stands as authority over them all. Stands as authority over them all. But here's an important question. Why? Why? Why did God design it this way? Why why does his word, his written word, stand as the authority for his people? Even over their leadership? You want to know that the answer to that question is pretty simple. Huh? Because we're fallible. Right? We're fallible. Men and women are fallible. Even the most pious, even the most godly, even people like Moses, right? Sin. Sometimes in big ways. Make mistakes. We are fallible, but here's the thing. The scripture is not. Amen? We are fallible, but the scripture is not. That's why Psalm 19 says, and you know, the Psalm 19 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord is pure. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. You see, being the very word of God, it has the very character of God. Is God fallible? Does God make mistakes? Not at all. And neither is his word doesn't make mistakes it's not fallible it is perfect sure right pure true altogether righteous and so the infallible scripture is to hold authority over the fallible people and scripture shows us this by example over and over again if we had time this morning we could, we could walk through the book of books of first and second kings and we could talk about Israel's rulers How did Israel's, those of you who are familiar with those books, how did Israel's rulers fare in that time? Were they a bunch of stand-up guys? No, some of them were absolute moral dumpster fires. I mean, they were a mess. They couldn't be trusted. Couldn't ultimately be rested in. Not even King David, a man after God's own heart. And we too, we need to be ruled and governed by the word of God, not the other way around. (laughs) think about with Jesus and his contemporaries uh, isn't this what he confronted the religious leaders with in his day remember he, he accused them of making void the word of God by the traditions you have handed down you may avoid the word of God by the traditions you've handed down. You see, through their traditions, they were assuming this authority, this role of authority over the word of God. It was a little bit like the tail trying to wag the dog. And that was the same error that was taking place in the pre-Reformation church. They were so confused about this issue of authority. It wasn't sola scriptura, scripture alone, as their ultimate authority. Instead, they had placed ultimate authority in the hands of a group of fallible men. Often, we're really cautious about that, but instead, where do we place authority? Right here with me as an individual, right? But they were placing authority in the hands of a group of men, and it was having dire consequences for the church. Here's the dire consequences. You see, the Church of Luther's Day, they'd actually lost the gospel. They'd lost their understanding of The gospel. Because they had drifted from this commitment to the scriptures, they ended up with a, a jacked up pseudo gospel that wasn't saving anybody. And so this is the second key area of battle during the Reformation. It was a battle not only about authority, it was a battle for the gospel. It was a battle over how a person is saved. And the reformers, as they went to the scriptures, they studied the scriptures, they taught that a person is saved by grace alone through faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone or to put it in the language of the solas they argued for sola gratia sola fide and solus Christus and they argued for these truths they made these truths the battle lines because that's what they were seeing in the scriptures that's what we see in the scriptures take your Bibles we're going to move on from Jude and go over to the book of Romans let me just remind you of this it's so clear in the scriptures Romans chapter 3 let's just look at this for a moment <clears throat> This glorious truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone. Now, here we are in Romans chapter 3. And up to this point, Paul has been making it very clear in the book of Romans that we all sin. It doesn't matter if you're a pagan Gentile or a pious Jew. It doesn't matter if you're an agnostic or a religious zealot. It doesn't matter. We all sin. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all rebelled against God in a myriad of ways and broken his holy law. And then Paul makes it so very clear that our works aren't getting us out of this mess. (laughs) We aren't aren't removing, we aren't fixing our sinful condition or removing the judgment and the condemnation due us. We aren't being made fit for heaven. We aren't being justified, declared righteous by attempting to obey the law. Throwing in our attempt at rule keeping isn't going to fix any of this. It's not how it works. That's why Paul says, look at verse 20 of Romans chapter 3. For by the works of the law... How many? How many? <laughs> no human being will be justified in his sight. Kind of ends the discussion, doesn't it? Yeah. Works aren't going to do it. But, but here's the thing. In the day of the reformers in, in the pre-reformation church, the church had become very confused about all of this. You see, many in the church were trying to do exactly what Paul says he can't do. They were trying to be justified, declared righteous in God's sight and fit for heaven by rule keeping. They actually developed a very elaborate system of rule keeping. And they said, if you keep all the rules, then you accrued merit. And you built up this merit with God. And if you built up enough merit, you then would be allowed into God's presence. You then would be made fit for heaven. And they had a variety of works that you could do, and they still do, the Catholic Church, to accrue merit. Things like praying to saints venerating relics even buying for yourself righteousness more merit through what is called indulgences but this at the center of that very elaborate merit-based system was seven what they called sacraments what they still call sacraments and these seven baptism the mass confession confirmation marriage and holy orders And last rites, they were essential rules. They were essential works that you needed to do in order to be saved. And here's the thing. That was the common, everyday, predominant understanding of how a person was saved in that era of the medieval church. From the pope to the plowman. That's what they all believed. Think about this. The entire church had fallen prey to this this works righteousness teaching. They were preaching a works righteousness pseudo-gospel. It was a very dark time in the history of the church. True gospel seemed lost. The reformers just went back to the scriptures. This is our authority. And they studied passages like this one. They found that salvation isn't through keeping the law. They found that salvation isn't through our works at all. Instead, what they discovered was salvation was by. Well, look at what Paul says here in Romans 3. After making it clear, look at. Verse 21, after making it clear that our rule keeping isn't saving anybody, he starts writing verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The Old Testament's pointing to these things as well, he's saying. The righteousness of God through what? Faith Faith in who? Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has what? The one who does a bunch of good works, keeps all the sacraments, what? The one who has faith in Jesus. And texts like this, rocked the reformer's world, and it should rock our world as well. Amen? It should rock our world. First, because as the reformers taught, we are given salvation sola gratia, by grace alone. Look at verse 24. How is a person justified? A person is made fit for heaven. How are they made fit for heaven? All are justified by his grace as a gift. Salvation comes as a gift. And we all know you don't work for a gift. You don't earn a gift. If you do, guess what? It ceases to be a gift, it becomes your wages. But here, God's word teaches that we're all declared righteous, justified as a gift. It is all of grace, it is the unmerited favor of God freely given to us. That's what grace means unmerited favor. Not merited, not something you work for, unmerited favor. So instead of salvation being based on these merits that we accrue through the works that we do, the reformers saw that the scripture taught the exact opposite. Salvation is a gift. This is a gift that's received through faith. And that's why the reformers also argued for sola fide, faith alone. Look again at these verses. Look at verse 22. This righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then look at verses 24 and 25. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You see, salvation is not received by faith in my works or your works. Instead, salvation is received by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Is received through faith in Christ, as Paul puts it here, as the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath against our sin. God's just, amen, judgment against our sin. And that's the gift. Someone actually paid for my sins. Someone actually paid for your sin. Someone actually faithfully obeyed all of God's laws. And it wasn't me paying for those sins, and it wasn't you paying for those sins, and it wasn't me doing all that obedience, and it wasn't you doing all that obedience. Who was it? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. I say this a lot. He really did. This isn't just like religious stories we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better. He really did. He did it for us. And he did it not because we deserved it, because we've been good little boys and girls following all of the rules, but it's simply out of his free and sovereign grace. And we receive that gift of his works saving us by trusting in his works, not ours. Trusting in his works, not ours. And this is what it's all about. It's all about trusting in Jesus Christ alone. That's why the reformers argued for solus Christus, or Christ alone. We're not saved by Jesus plus our works. That's not what this text says, nor any other text of the scriptures. Jesus' finished work, praise God, is more than sufficient. Doesn't need addition, doesn't need supplements. Here's what we need to do, brothers and sisters, we simply need to rest in it, amen? We need to rest in it. We need to rest in his sinless life, rest in his atoning death, rest in his victorious resurrection, and rest in his coming consummation. We need to trust. We need to trust that Jesus lived the life we failed to live, and he died the death that we deserve to die, and he conquered the foe, sin and the grave, that we could never conquer. Up until the point of the resurrection, how many people have been conquering sin and death? From Genesis chapter 3 to the resurrection. Nobody, right? It was the undefeatable foe. But he conquered it for us. And we need to trust that he is coming again to make all things new. Amen? He and he alone is to be our hope. That's what we rest in. We rest in his works, not ours. And here's the thing this is God's plan, his only plan. There's only plan A, there's not plan B. For salvation for our salvation this is the only plan look at the text verse 26 says this the salvation by grace alone through faith alone and the finished work of christ alone this was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just see god actually dealt with our sin at the cross wasn't this okay god's gonna turn a blind eye on sin he's just gonna pretend like it never happened no he dealt with it his justice was satisfied. So that he might be just, Christ actually died for our sin, and the justifier. God is the one who's doing the saving work. It's all of grace. He's the one who justifies us. We don't justify ourselves. The justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That was God's plan for all salvation from the very beginning. And that, brothers and sisters, is the biblical gospel. That's the biblical gospel. But as the reformers preach that, Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone. Guess what? It caused serious upheaval in the church. You see, the gospel that they preached stood in stark contrast with the church's elaborate and very profitable system of merit. That's actually what Luther's 95 Thesis were all about. They were an attack on the sale of what was called indulgences. And that was a sale of merit that you could buy to reduce your time or your loved one's time in purgatory. That was another thing that the church taught that you had to do in order to be made fit for heaven. You had to further, once you were all done with the stuff here, you had to further atone for your sin before you were fit for heaven. You had to further suffer in purgatory. You had to be purged of these things before you would be righteous enough for heaven. The church taught that, and then they also began to teach that you could reduce your sentence in purgatory by paying the church money. They saw what was called indulgences, and indulgences, what it was based on is, well, there's some people like the saints who are just so great that they have extra merit. So there's this big storehouse in heaven, and the Pope has access to that, and so if you buy these indulgences, he will take some of that and credit it to your account. So you are shaking your heads, and you're like, I can't believe that. Guess what? They still hold to that teaching. Still practice that. And as you can imagine, uh, the church of that period was making money hand over fist off that deal. But as Luther and the other reformers began to understand the gospel and they saw the indulgences for what they were huh, exploitation and gospel corruption uh, they began to preach against that system. And, and they didn't just see the indulgences were the problem, eventually, they began to see that the entire system for what, what it was it was a false gospel. That was creating a false church. It was corrupting the church. And so as they taught the true gospel and they sought to reform the church by rescuing the church from itself, guess what? They were threatening the entire system. And that threatening of the system put their lives in jeopardy. They they put their very lives in jeopardy. Again, this was not just an academic debate, ivory tower theology. This was real world stuff. Uh, They put their very lives in jeopardy by contending for the faith. But here's the thing. Many of them were willing to give up their very lives because they realized that they were in a battle about something much bigger than themselves, Uh, and even about something much bigger than the church. You see, they realized that this ultimately was a battle over preeminence. That's the third area I want to talk about. Who or what is at the center? Who or what is at the center? Is it all here for you? For me? For the church? As the reformers studied the scriptures, that's not what they saw. And this led to the last sola, sola del gloria, to the glory of God alone. Paul fits it so clear in the end of Romans chapter 11. Listen, this is Romans 11, 36. Just listen to it. Very short, but just listen, so powerful. For, and he's talking about God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Listen to that again. For from him, and we praise God, oh, he gives us all things. And through him, okay, we understand it's working through him. But what's the ultimate goal of it? To him are all things. So Paul says, to him be the glory forever. And that was really the underlying battle. The glory of God alone. It was the underlying battle in the Reformation, and it's still the underlying battle today. Who is preeminent? who is at the center? Who is this really all about? And the medieval church, the pre-Reformation church, had made it really all about man. Man was at the center. Man's authority was on top. Man's works were what saved him. Man was preeminent. And, And when you study this, it's fascinating to see that they ended up here. This is such a good lesson for us from history. The church of that era, it looked like they put this heavy emphasis on the glory of God. They built these massive cathedrals to proclaim the glory and majesty of God. They had these elaborate ceremonies to show the uniqueness of God. They had an orthodox understanding of the nature of God. They preached often on sin and the law and judgment. They looked like they were doing a lot of things to make it all about God. But when they lost the right authority and when they lost their handle on the gospel, they ended up in a very empty, useless, man-centered place. Ended up a very empty, man-centered religion. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. We in the modern church, we're on the same trajectory if we're not there already. Think about it. People talk a lot about Jesus. We have more bibles and books on the bible than we can even count we put all kinds of money into building these these elaborate worship centers and designing programs intended to bring people to god and help them grow but here's the thing as we drift from the right authority we make it all about the individual we're all a bunch of religious consumers trying to figure out what works for you when we drift from the right authority And as too many Christians are ready to run past the glory of the gospel, trying to engage the lost through other means, with other ways, trying to help Jesus be relevant, we're on on the same dangerous trajectory. And and you look around, we're already ending up in some very shallow, empty, useless, man-centered places. We're making things all about us instead of all about him. Instead of all about him. And what history tells us is that this is such a dangerous direction to be heading. Think about it, They actually lost the gospel. The things that we were talking about from Romans 3, I mean, that was like the light bulb was coming on for them. They lost the gospel. History tells us when we lose authority, gospel message, center, we're heading in such a dangerous direction. So will we learn from that, brothers and sisters? Or will we, as the saying goes, be condemned to repeat it? We can learn the easy way, or we can learn the hard way. Jude says we need to fight, we need to contend earnestly for the faith. And our brothers and sisters in the Reformation, they drew out some pretty clear battle lines. What is our authority? How is a person saved? Who is at the center? We have these wonderful five solas: scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone. Christ alone, the glory of God alone. Here's the question for us this morning: What will we do with it? What will we do with it? What will we do with their testimony? What will we do with these battle lines? Will we say, "Well, we talked about that once a year"? (laughs) All right, that's something I know about. Or will we contend earnestly for these things? And here's the thing, brothers and sisters: I'll tell you where the battle starts. I'll tell you where the battle starts. It starts right here, right here, in your own heart and in our own church. What will be the authority for our lives? Really, what will be the authority? Will we truly live lives, thus says the Lord, that's the direction I'm going, lives by the word of God, or will we lean on our own understanding? Will we rest in our own wisdom? we trust in the world's counsel. It sounds good. Instead of leaning on the counsel of God. Brothers and sisters, that's a daily struggle, isn't it? And sometimes our struggle is not, okay, there's a clear thing of Scripture that we're fighting against. Sometimes we just don't even know. That's what happened in the pre-Reformation church. They really didn't know the Scriptures. So they didn't even know what they weren't doing. Do we struggle with that? Again, amen on that one? I mean, we, have, we have, probably many of us have multiple Bibles in our house, but it has been neglected. What will be the authority in our lives? He as if God stepped down from heaven and spoke to us directly, and yet it just sits there. What will be the authority in our lives? As we fight that battle, we also wrestle with the battle, what will be our hope and our confidence? What will be our hope and our confidence? Will we be people who truly rest in the finished work of Christ, trusting in him alone? Or will we run to find our identity, our meaning, our standing with God in other places? What other places do we run to? Worldly success, right? How good we are at rule keeping. What's in our bank account? That's where my security is found. Right? Right? How about this one? You uh, moms and dads, especially of young ones. Parenting success. Don't we sometimes use that as our identity? Finding our value that way? Resting in that, my hope, my joy is riding on that. I'll ask it this way. What gospel are you preaching to your heart? What gospel are you preaching to your heart? What is your hope and your confidence? Is it grace alone? Faith alone? Christ alone? Or is it something else? And how we answer that question, brothers and sisters, reveals what's at the center. Who's at the center? And that's really what it all comes down to. What's it all about? Who's it all about? All about you? All about us? Have we we realized that we don't have the graph, the gravity, the sufficiency, the mass to be at the center of our lives. Have we realized that yet? That guess what happens? When we put ourselves at the center, everything falls apart, right? We can't keep it in the right orbit when we're at the center. There's only one worthy of that position. There's only one who has, has the mass, the gravity to be really at the center and put everything where it should be. And it's not us. Only God is the one worthy of that position. And when we see that, when we see that that's where he is, he is the center. Guess what, brothers and sisters? Everything else falls into place. Everything else falls into place. These are the battle lines, brothers and sisters. Authority, salvation, center. We need to contend. We need to contend earnestly. And we need to start contending in our own hearts and in our own church. That's what history teaches us. That's what the Reformation teaches us. Will we learn from it? Or will we be condemned to repeat the errors of the past? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of your word. And I thank you for these brothers and sisters who lived long ago, not perfect people, but people who in your grace your mercy by the power of your spirit and brought them back to the book and brought them back to the scriptures and they behold the glory of the gospel they saw your glory they saw how they had wandered away from it and they fought hard they contended for the faith and we thank you so much for their testimony I thank you that we are in that Tradition, then that's our heritage. But I, I pray for us that we would take so seriously this call to a right authority, a right understanding of the gospel, having you at, truly at the center. This would not simply be things, oh, well, we talked about that on Sunday. That was interesting. Or those are things I already know but help each and every one of us truly to examine our hearts and learn this powerful lesson from history that when we get the wrong authority, we lose the gospel, we lose you at the center, and everything is a mess. Help us to come to that place of joyfully surrendering ourselves to your word, joyfully living our life out of, A confidence out of a hope in the finished work of Christ alone. Help us to see the blessing of having you at the center and the peace and the joy and the fulfillment and the confidence and the comfort that it brings when you're there. Help us to see that in our church. That redemption never becomes a church about what do people want. But it comes about all of us, focused on you, delighting in you, glorifying you, saying, what do you want? What have you revealed? Let us be a place where you are glorified and worshipped. And our hearts are filled because of that. Help us to be people who live out these truths, who contend for the faith in our own lives, in our own hearts, and in our own church first. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.